Bob Cowan. John Shannon. It's the Bob Cowan podcast. Wherever you find great podcasts, oh, and, or and, mediocre, or mediocre ones. Well, some shitty ones too, <laughs> and 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 also on Sirius XM, where I assume there's no shitty podcast. Not at six o'clock on channel one sixty seven for sure. Thank you very much. Uh, patting yourself on the back there too. Every once in a while. Um. We never know where this conversation is going to go. And, and, and um, I say that occasionally with one of our regulars. <laughs> but this guy's one of those guys. Uh, Keith Oberman, ex of everywhere. Oberman has worked for everybody. But I think both, I, I know I got to know him best um, at, with ES, when he was with ESPN. Yeah. And I met, I met him when he was in Los Angeles. Yeah. So. Um, he's a fascinating guy, has plenty of stories and, um, you don't even really need a topic to start the conversation because Oberman will go where Oberman will go. And we will find out where he's going to go today. When, uh, when we come back, Keith Oberman after these messages and, uh, we are back. It's McCown. It's uh, Shannon with you and our buddy, our chum, our pal, Keith Oberman joins us from uh, New York city. That's uh, if you're watching on YouTube or on our channel that is central park in the background. And, um, Oberman was just giving directions to all of the notable sites. <laughs> I, I miss New York. You know, I, I, I spent those five years uh, commuting between Toronto and, and New York city, working at, at the NHL offices down sixth Avenue. And boy, oh boy, I used to, I just loved walking around, particularly that area you're in Keith, that, uh, that central park and, and, uh, Walking, uh, walking, walking into uh, Mr. Trump's hotel and pretending to order a drink, you know. <laughs> it's uh, it's why I live here is the walking, uh, yeah. particularly the park, and I'm also from here. But your point is well taken. I mean, I have, I've twice moved to Los Angeles for you know lengthy periods of time. <laughs> you don't and, walk anywhere. Well, you know, if you if you know how to do it, what you do is you move to Santa Monica and then you yeah. walk on the beach, which is sure. a good runner up to this. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, ESPN was not in New York, as, as, as perhaps I've noticed, no, mentioned to you a couple of times. <laughs> um, it's you go, you just go over here and you drive to the horizon and <laughs> then um, you go another 15, 20 horizons and then you're halfway there. You just keep driving till the wheels fall off. But I mean, it is it's for me also on top of every other appeal that it has to people. And it usually has some appeal to somebody or something for almost everybody. It's where I'm from. I, I used to love uh, there were you know, the NHL office would close. No, I would stay and work late, and there would be very few people in the office. And I, on a non-game night, I would go and walk and find a good old-fashioned Irish pub, and there because oh, yeah. there are so many. And you'd go down the stairs, and there'd be an Irish pub, and you'd sit there and have a burger and a beer, and invariably watch the Yankee game, uh, and they'd be telling you everything we, they, you need to know about did the you, Yankees every day. Did, did you ever go to Clark's on Third Avenue? Uh, PJ Clark's. The, oh, uh, sure, was, absolutely. You know, the, I my first apartment in this city when I was twenty-one years old was at fifty-fifth and second, and Clark's was at fifty-fifth and third. And I developed a great friendship with a guy who worked in between my address and Clark's. And then it turned out his father had been in the Irish Republican Army <laughs> with a bartender at Clark's. <laughs> I mean, I, th I'm. This is absolutely legit. So we, although we had to pay for food there, we never paid for drinks. And <laughs> happily, to get home from Clark's, I only had to cross one street to be able to get home after free drinking at Clark's. But I ran into. It was a great story. It's too long, I think, to tell you. But it was a great story of of, of being assigned by my boss Charlie Steiner to find George Steinbrenner during the baseball strike and find out where a secret meeting was going to be held. And I spent all, all day looking for it and couldn't find it. And I was walking past Clark's on the way home and the side door of Clark's opened and out stepped George Steinbrenner in a tux about 40 feet ahead of me. And I didn't, I was 22. I didn't have the guts to go up and ask him, for, you know, but he, he, he went to a, uh, to, to get in a limo. And I, uh, I said uh, to myself, I, I, maybe I can, I'm going to, I'm going to say something at which point he turned back to the side door of Clark's, which was still open and went, Eddie, Eddie. And Eddie turned out to be Edward Bennett Williams, the right. former owner of Washington of the NFL and the Baltimore or in the Baltimore Orioles. And Edward Bennett Williams leads out, goes, 
what, George? And George goes, where's that secret meeting tomorrow at Bowie Kuhn's? Where, where's that? And he goes, it's, it's, it's at his condo. Oh, yeah, great. I'll see you there. Well, what's the address? And I'm just like, I'm plastering myself to the wall trying to see, make sure nobody sees me. He gives the address and the time of the meeting. And I go go to my apartment and call Charlie, who's threatened to fire me and the producer if we don't get him the information. And I said, here's the meeting. It's it's such and such, at, you know, at uh, Bowie Coon's uh, uh, condo, which is the address is on Park Avenue. blah. And he says, oh, how in the hell did you find that out? I went, I ran into Steinbrenner at Clark's. <laughs> but it's you know it's a, it's a city of bars so, so is actually so later on in your time in new york uh, yeah. much much to do with steinbrenner yes actually um I, i'm i'm one of those people uh who was fortunate enough never to work for him although he suggested it once and i said my god george one of us would kill the other within a half an hour um but george i knew george from when i was 15 years old and he was one, it's one of those things where he always popped up somewhere in my life or I popped up in his somewhere. He wrote a fan letter to my boss at ESPN after I just started there. He wrote a fan letter to my boss at NBC after I started there. And most spectacularly, during the 2000 World Series, which was the year my mother got hit by the baseball thrown by Chuck Knobloch during the mm-hmm. regular season, I was hosting the World Series and baseball for Fox. So I was the guy doing the presentation to the Yankees with Bud Selig in the Yankees clubhouse at Shea Stadium, the home of the Mets. And uh, and George was particularly emotional about that World Series. I don't know why still. And he's standing there as they're waiting to throw to us. And George was, was blubbering and finally went, I'm sorry. And he pulled me into an embrace and just stained my shoulder with, with George tears. And finally he went, is your mother here? And I went, George, she hates Shea Stadium more than you do. <laughs> she wouldn't, she said she, I offered to get her tickets. She said she wouldn't come here if you let her play third base. And he went like this. He went, I love her more than ever before. <laughs> <laughs> and George was just, George was just a great guy to me. And I would, then he would go and do these terrible things to his employees and make life a living hell for people. But the reputation he had of being great to people he did not work with or who yep. used to work with mm-hmm. him is very true. And the last one was even after he began to lose his awareness one day I go to a, to a Yankee game and Bill Clinton is, pre- is presenting a check we're accepting a check from the Yankees for tsunami relief in the Indian Ocean. So this is 2004 or five, whenever that was. And he's in, he and Steinbrenner are in Steinbrenner's box, which adjoins the press box and is separated only by, by plastic. Um, and, and in the middle of the game, the Yankees president, Randy Levine, comes over and goes, uh, George wants to know if you'd like to sit with the, him and President Clinton. And I was like... Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Him or a bunch of radio reporters who smell bad. Let me see. And I went in there and George Steinbrenner recited every moment that he and I had had wow. for at that point 30 years. This young man, he once when I fired a manager and didn't go to the press conference, he had the perspicacity to come up here and find me and make me do the interview anyway. And this young man, this and he couldn't he was already having such trouble he couldn't remember my name. But he remembered an hour's, he told an hour's worth of stories about me, all of them wonderful, and my mother, and my father, and my sister, all these stories to a former president of the United States. As I sat there going, yes, yes, no, no, that's true. I was, I was great. Yes, that's right. Thank you. So I, I, uh, I, I and you know, just, and just things I be at a press conference where he has traded for a pitcher and they're not sure whether or not the pitcher can make it in New York. And I'm in the back watching, and I feel a tap on my shoulder, and it's George, and he whispers. He goes, is he doing okay? Do you think we made the right move? And I'm like, what are you asking me for? You already made the trade. You should have asked me beforehand. You're right. Would you like to work for me as an assistant general manager? No, for God's sakes, no. So I loved I, I loved him, and it's, uh, you know, I, I tell these stories to some people who dealt with them a lot, and they'll go, no, no, George Steinbrenner. Yeah. Steinbrenner? <laughs> Steinbrenner? You sure? I'm not a I'm not a voracious reader, but uh, the biography I think it's called The Last Lion. Uh, Bill Madden's Stein, book. Bill Madden's book. Yeah. I I I could not put it down. Yeah. I could not put it down. It's a little rosy about him. I mean, it's slightly too positive, I think. But 
generally speaking, I think it paints a pretty pretty fair picture of, of George. Well, it, it, what it did do was it, it got people on the record that yeah. had been around him, guys like so. Gabe Paul and 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 yeah. and those those types of influencers that uh, would talk about George. And it was one of those ones. That, as I said, I, you, you couldn't help. And we've all been around owners, right? We've all been oh, yeah. around owners all our life, and and. Some get treated well, some don't get treated uh, that well, and uh, that book has stuck with me. As, and 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 what Steinbrenner was to Yankee fans and to uh, and to the game of baseball. Yeah, I agree completely. Well, I can't compete, obviously, with, with any of that. Um, I, I did have Steinbrenner on my show a couple of times. Um, once in, in when I when I used to do the show from the from the ballpark. He actually sat beside me and did the show, and yep. uh, and was charming. Yep. And um, and then another time, my producer just called the office, and I don't know what happened because I was on the air at the time. But apparently, that somebody put the call through to his office, and he said, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll go on," and just boom, came on the air. It was, was like that. Yep. Yeah. It was like that. I I had one once. He fired or he re, he brought back Yogi Berra after twenty years of of uh, having. Barra having been fired after the 1964 World Series, brought him back as manager. And it was just one of those bone-chilling, like the first bone-chilling night of winter. And we were set up live next to the big bat outside Yankee Stadium for CNN. And my producer went in and came back out with George Steinbrenner and Yogi Berra, neither of whom were wearing overcoats. So I said, just... Throw it, throw it to me now, and we did. We did ten minutes, and George was jovial. And I said, "All right, well, you guys are. I see you guys are turning into blocks of ice. So I'll thank you very much." He goes, "Wait a minute, I have to say something." Ted Turner, keep your hands off Goose Gossage. I'm, I'm re-signing him. You're not going to get him as a free agent. Okay, thanks very much. Good to see you, Keith and, and Yogi. And they, and they, and they, and they, they went off, and and it was like. I had him once on ESPN Radio when the when the uh, when the uh, suspension ended. And we were supposed to do. 20 minutes and we, I thanked him and he goes, I'm enjoying this. If you want to talk longer. And I was like, yeah, I, yeah, I think yep. so. We went, we went two hours and he just, oh and it was, it was just this thing about once you entered the equation as an employee, there was something wrong with everything that you did. But, but if you were not an employee, I mean, the stories of him and the charity that he, that, that he gave out and refused to let anybody tell anything. It's Bill Madden's book has a lot of it. I think it's, uh, George is a, is an ex, was an extraordinary figure, and and with perspective, like how his sons have nearly run this unique franchise into the ground. Um, uh, with perspective, we understand that he was actually, particularly in the last twenty years of it, he was actually pretty damn good as an owner. Well, we've spent a fair bit of time the last while talking about Eugene Melnick, who passed away, the owner of the yeah. Ottawa Senators, who passed away a couple of weeks ago. Did you know him at all? Because I did, Stein I did not. But it's the same kind of. Uh, devil and angel dichotomy. Exactly the same yeah. kind of guy. If you worked for him, you had nothing but but horror stories about him. Yeah. If you were just like us, we were we became friends. Yeah, he was he was wonderful. He was crazy. He had some of the craziest ideas I'd ever heard, and I've told the story before. <laughs> this is a guy who called me at three o'clock in the morning um, to to tell me I've got a, I've got this great idea. From now on, I'm going to have all Canadian players. I'm not gonna, no, I'm not going to draft Americans, Swedes, Russians, Finns, nobody else, just Canadian players. Isn't that a fantastic? And was serious at three no. o'clock in the morning. And I, well, well you know, it, it it's something. It's it is one of the few things that transcends which sport we're talking about. I guess of all the hockey people that I knew, um, the the one, the owners and, and executives that I knew, the one I knew best was Harry Ornest. <laughs> and, oh my God! Uh, um, Harry was Harry was the greatest news source I ever had in hockey. Yeah. Although he had nothing to do with the Gretzky story, one day he called me up and he said, "Now, Keith, the uh, Toronto Argonauts, which I I sold to Bruce McNall, who has not yet paid me, I've drafted Rocket Ismail from Notre Dame." And he will be at tonight's Kings playoff game because they have signed him to a contract. And the next day was the NFL draft. He said, now, never, very few people know this, but if you go out there, you'll probably be able to get an interview with him. And sure enough, 
My producer and I were going to the game anyway, and there he was sitting in McNall's box, and nobody knew it was him. And we staked him out and got him coming and broke the story that he was on the eve of the NFL draft going to the CFL. So he used to produce stuff like that. I, yeah. I don't know. The whole, the whole McNall arc of him getting into trouble and being kicked off the Board of Governors – Keith, I have some new McNall news. And he all called him McNall. He won't be on, the, he's on the Board of Governors now. He won't be on the Board of Governors by nightfall. And he would tell the story. And then he would ask me things like, now to get this next scoop, you must tell me, who was Cardin Gillenwater? And I said, uh, outfielder, Cardinals, late 30s, early 40s. Oh my goodness, you got it right. And he was in the Western International League, which is where I saw him play. Well, then I'll tell you what happened to McNall. And it was just like <laughs> just, and it wasn't, he was it sounded like he was toying with me, but he wasn't. It was it was fascinating. And McNall was fascinating. I knew him a little bit, too. And and there was oh, no yeah. I, I walked in once to um, uh, a place on the beach in Santa Monica, I always blank on the name of it, but a fairly famous restaurant. I went to meet my friend Norman Lloyd, the actor who lived to be 106, and he wasn't there yet. And there was a guy sitting on the uh, on the on the little wooden bench, looked awfully familiar as I came in the door, and I got a little closer. And it was Gretzky, and uh, and I and he, Keith, what are you doing here? And I said, What are you doing here? And we talked for a little bit. I said, But seriously, what, I'm meeting my friend as actor. He's going to live to be 106. And I said, uh, I told him, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm meeting Bruce. And I went, uh, he's in prison. No, 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 not as of um, about 9 o'clock. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, he's just, he's getting shaved and showered. He'll be over here. We're having lunch. I went, didn't, uh, weren't you, uh, weren't you one of the victims? I mean, didn't you not get some of the, some of the money you were supposed to get? He goes, well, yes, but everything else, I got met my wife because of him and I got to live here because of him. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he said, I, I always enjoyed him. And, you know, I just, you know, you learn things. I don't trust him with any of my money anymore. But uh, I said, so wait, so the first thing he's doing coming out of prison is lunch with me. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be right <laughs> over. And I was like, well, I don't know what that says about the two of you, but it's positive, I think, on both of your your your, your, uh, your accounts. And and then, and sure enough, what's the all here he is now, and it came McDonaldson is a rail, and he, well, Keith, this is an unexpected expected pleasure, and I, you know, all the stories about him getting thrown off the NHL board of governors and being and losing the Kings came through me into ESPN anyway, through through uh, Harry, yeah, through Harry, and and there was no there was no, no animosity. None whatsoever. And it's just, they are, I think almost all sports owners have one thing in common, which is they're very broad personalities and they contain, as the, as the Bible says, multitudes. I mean, they are, there are a lot of different people going on at once. And I guess that makes sense to have the money. Together. Well, they're all, yeah, they're yeah. all crazy, but they're yeah. all um, somehow, somehow delightfully charming. Yeah. Some uh, are not not uh, not, well, no, not, not all owners. Not all owners are delightfully <laughs> charming. Oh, some of them are just complete assholes. But, but I can name you six in this city that are not charming in the slightest. So, well, but the, the, the biggest issue that. the biggest issue I always have with owners is that they have they have become so darn successful in business mm -hmm. and have put you know have hired the right people and have put proper practices in place for business and they go out the window. When they become sports owners, and yep. they become irrational. Yes. Uh, and there are time and time and time again. You go, well, would you, if, if you know if you were running your department store chain, or if you were doing this with their shipping company, would you let this happen? Well, no way. But this is this is my team. Yeah. Oh. Well, and 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 there was also there's always a belief that that well Steinbrenner was convinced because he had a college football background. He was convinced that they could win every game, and there was there was a reason. I mean, that, that inevitably some games would not be won. Those were failures that could not be correct, but they were failures. Yeah, <laughs> losses were failures. Were business failures to him, and and part of that that interview that he was so impressed by the fact that I went up and got it from him was about the one of the two. I mean, he changed managers uh, in one season twice, only once, and this was the year he did that. And the second time, he didn't bother going to the press conference. He used to enjoy the press conferences. Sure. I fired him like that. And then in the second one, I was like, oh, I already did that this year. I don't want to do it again. But we had a long conversation. I said, well, 
how in the world is a manager supposed to succeed if you gave him 40 games? It's a long time in business or in sports, and you have to motivate. These are not yesterday's players. You have to get them on, and the failures of losses, I said, are all losses failures? To some degree, yes, they are. And it became a very philosophical discussion. We used that you know, separately in, in, the, in the news of the day stuff, and then we had a, a separate feature with George Steinbrenner claiming that all baseball losses were actually failures that could be avoided and theoretically you could win every game you played for 10 years nuts well, yeah what did, what did he pay he, he bought the team from cbs did he not yeah that was there was an announced figure and then there was the actual figure yeah. cbs he, yeah he gave them the announced figure i think was 12 million dollars right. that included two million for the parkade across the street but the, right the parking garages around yeah they weren't they were lots <laughs> they were not actually parking i know because okay. My, my mom used to park in one of these nice lots, but they were, it was a guy standing there with a baton in case somebody tried to break into your Rambler. Um, but they, they, they sold these parking garages back to CBS. It was a paper transaction to inflate the fact that they really only, the Yankees only cost Steinbrenner and his partners, mind you, right. about eight and a half million dollars. And this is, George, this is, this is, this is, this is after he George's, couldn't. By the Indians, yeah. Right, he couldn't buy the Indians. Right. Because that's really and, who, that's the team he wanted to own. Yeah, it was Cleveland. It was a good, they, they, you know, you don't, there's not a lot of, like, big ship building here in New York anymore. It's not 1875. Right. So Cleveland was where it was at. He built, he built all of these steamers and particularly freighters and all the rest of that. And uh, and he wanted that team. He couldn't get it. And Gabe Paul said, I think the Yankees are for sale. I think CBS wants out of that deal. And, and CBS lost. CBS spent twelve million dollars on the Yankees and lost money. CBS lost money on the Yankees in New York, and they near. And the other thing is, they nearly moved out of town. The next option was to let them move to Florida or Denver, which is you know it's the franchise is worth you know a, a tidy like nine hundred and ninety million dollars more than it was, or maybe it's one point nine nine billion more than it was when George George bought it. So that's that's it's a pretty good investment on his part. Well I was gonna say that's that's what I was gonna say. It was nineteen seventy three, wasn't it, Keith? Nineteen winter of seventy two, seventy three, yeah. Yeah. So so he pays whatever eight million dollars for the franchise. Three years later the Toronto Blue Jays get an expansion franchise for seven point five million dollars. About the same yeah. as what George paid for the New York Yankees. <laughs> yes, even then that was noticeable. Yes. Even right? then, that didn't seem to make a lot of logical sense. No, and now there's there's two franchises worth well over a billion dollars, and um, who knows, maybe five billion. Well, let's face it, the Yankee the Yankees have changed uh, so many aspects of of sports in North America when you consider what they've done with uh, at one point the starting of their own channel yep. uh, and the whole concept. It's it's they were the original designers of, of of baseball teams being outside of playing baseball and putting people in seats yep and uh at, you know i mean other other baseball teams and other sports franchises have then you know created franchises of their mm -hmm. own in other sports but but in the 21st century the yankees also led in that and and as somebody who said they saw i think in the late 90s they were traveling through doing a world tour and they saw a guy in a yankees cap in antarctica yeah. And uh, it, uh, underscoring just how good the marketing was, and somebody—I mean, somebody didn't know what it was. They just liked what it looked like. Yeah. So, hey, I, I, I got your time in LA. Yes, uh, and oh, yes. Uh, and uh, HBO's right now got their uh, their Jerry Bus uh, show, their series going on. How much interaction did you have with Bus? I didn't know him well. I came in in '85, so the real sort of the birth of that whole thing was was before I got there. Um, and I think I met him only a couple of times. I, I knew Jeannie a little bit better. In fact, later on, Jeannie and I went out on a date. Um, before I was actually, I was literally the last, uh, guy she dated before Phil Jackson, which was, uh, kind of interesting. So, uh, it was nice. We had, we're still friends. I mean, there was no acrimony. It just was right. like, eh, okay, let's, we'll have dinner, but we'll just have dinner next time, whatever. Um, and uh, so I knew her a little bit better, uh, which was its own interesting experience. But but uh, J Jerry was Jerry was Jerry believed that one of the positions, one of the starting positions on the, the team was at guard, at setter, at owner, 
Jerry Buss. I think he believed he should be introduced yeah. every day. And and I, I do. I will say this. I think given on, on a small roster size team, I don't know if there have been a greater assemblage of, again, really contains multitudes kind of personalities than the Lakers of, of the oh, late yeah. 70s and the early 80s. For every player, the coach who was his own, you know, his own sideshow as well, although very dignified when he did so. Uh, Kareem, who's a friend of, of mine to this day, I'm very proud to say, and is one of the most interesting, intelligent, and subtle people I have ever met in my life. And, you know, the owner, the the, the play-by-play man, and, you know... Chick Hearn. Chick Hearn, Fiery. The, we knew all knew, before it was publicized, we all knew the legend of Chicky Baby firing... Al Michaels, and we knew all these great, you know, it's like, this is just, you You went to the fabulous forum, and you said, yeah, I mean, it's an advertising, I mean, it's a merchandising thing to call it the fabulous forum, but it's not a bad adjective, that's probably, these people are all pretty fabulous. And well, that was know, Mr. Now, Cook, though, that called him, uh, called it the fabulous forum. No, and I'm just saying that, but it lived up, and when, yeah, when, when, when Mr. Cook had them, they weren't quite that fabulous. No, they were team there. No. Uh, <laughs> No, they really weren't. But the, the 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 fabulosity of that place, given what a dump the forum was, and the you know you like what is that pattern on the walls? Mold? Oh, that's nice. <laughs> it looks good against the velour velour sort of paneling kind of thing they have there. Painted concrete with mold. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the, the only thing about the about the the Lakers that was not. Uh, super in some way or fabulous in some way was the building itself, but yeah. uh, and the fabulous sizzler across the street, which <laughs> so, <laughs> I used to have to stay at that hotel uh, right oh, across the street uh, that was halfway between the forum and Hollywood Park, where I'm Hollywood sure you had, you had lunch with Harry a few times. Yeah, I, I yep. assume because he was a bit, he yes. owned Hollywood Park at one point. Yes, he, he did for a while. Yeah. He did. Yes, he, he had a, at least a majority ownership in it. That's right. And it was, I mean, that was about the time where I was in LA the first time when he's, he's when he was taking it over. And uh, I did a great, uh, I never did these, but they, I did a great charity event there uh, because <laughs> they asked me for Bob Curlin of Curlin and Job, the doctors sure. who revolutionized athletes survivability of, of, of uh, arm and, 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 other injuries and my memory of hollywood park is them calling up and saying would you do this and i'm like well okay i don't i don't really like to do them not that i i just don't feel comfortable doing them i don't think i'm good at them and they said walter mathow will be there with his friend and i went what time and <laughs> I, I just, just a chance to meet walter mathow and i and i went to this thing and screwed up all the courage i because my at my age the first time i saw a sports writer depicted anywhere like what did they do what did it look like even if it wasn't exactly right was the odd couple be the odd couple and mm-hmm. it was walter mathow so that, that was in the going through every stage from age nine on trying to think i want to be a sports writer i want to be a sportscaster what does it look like it looks like walter mathow i love that <laughs> including the large apartment and not having to pick up after myself this sounds like a great idea so I go to introduce myself to Walter Matthau, who's there because he sits next to Curlin at the Lakers games and is very shy and doesn't really like to do the, the charity stuff either. And I said, Mr. Matthau, I'm Keith Olbermann from Channel 2, and I just wanted to say, the first time I ever had an idea, blah, 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 blah. And he looks up at me and he goes, I hate you. <laughs> and I was like, he goes, no, 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 I'm sorry. I, I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. He said, I, I love your work. I watch you every night usually twice on Channel 2 Action News with Jim Lampley and Bree Walker and you. He said, but I hate you. And I said, okay. He said, I hate you because you don't have an accent of any kind. Where are you from, Iowa? And I said, uh, uh, the Bronx. Really? I'm from Brooklyn. Did you know that? I went, I heard, I heard it somewhere. He goes, wait, how, do you, how is it you're from the Bronx? You don't have an accent. I said, well, my father told me that if I wanted to succeed in my business, I could not talk like everybody else in the family. He went, was he a speech teacher? And I went, no, he was an architect. How in the hell does that work? And I went, well, okay, it's a long story. I said, but why do you hate me because I don't have an accent? Well, I can't do an impression of you, can I? And I was like, what, what do you mean? You do impressions of sportscasters? Yes, all the leading ones. Would you like to hear them? And I said, I, I, I'll pay cash. 
And I just didn't, you know, just this is the time when people don't remember Walter Matthau, did not know of his, like you can see his work still to this day, even though he's gone 20 years. Um, oversized personality, oversized actor, but one of the three or four most impersonated people in North America. Mm-hmm. Everybody did Sammy Davis and Walter Matthau and a couple of other people here and there. And and you, everybody could do, you just do that. You shake shoulders and you're doing Walter Matthau impressions. And the idea that he did impressions of any kind just was amazing. But he did sportscasters, and I and I said, I said, you do. He says, I practice a lot by by myself. And I was like, I can't believe this. It was later confirmed for me by a great friend of his that yes, he did this and used to annoy the friend as they would do these recreational hikes through the, the greater you know forests around Los Angeles. He'd be practicing the sportscasters, and he said. Well, let's start with the with the greatest. We'll do Vin Scully, and I don't do this for a lot of people. He said, uh, "Vin Scully," and it sounds something like this: "Hi, this is Vin Scully at Dodger Stadium. What you think?" <laughs> and it was just—it sounded like a bad Walter Matthau, but I'm not going to tell. I just said, <laughs> "Uncanny! It's the best I've ever heard." Anyway, I work a lot on Vin because I enjoy the Dodger games so much, as you know. Okay, let me do Chick Hearn for you. That's one of my—I'm really good with Chick. Uh, this is Chicky Baby at the Forum with the Lakers. What do you think of that one? I said, w- r- you should put out an album. And then he did. Cosa. <laughs> How would Cosell at the, at the fight? What do you think of that? And he went on. He did 10 or 12 of these, and it was the, the day. They all sounded the same. They, were, they all sounded like him. There was, no, there was no deviation from it whatsoever. And it's just one of these priceless things in which, you you know, 10 years, 20 years later, where you would have had a phone with you. But this is 19... You know, 91, I, I had a cell phone. It didn't occur to me to call my own answering machine and just hold it to a, you know, <laughs> yeah. do them into the phone for me because they were just, but that's my memory of Hollywood Park. It's not, it's not the, the, the ornate, uh, uh, ornate lunches, but it's. And know. I thought you were going to tell us that you were there when Harry got into the fight with John Forsythe. Come on. Oh my God. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I've heard about that one, but no, I, 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 I missed, I missed it. Uh, the old uh, Dodger <laughs> PA announcer, John Forsythe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm, I've been hesitant to interrupt this because it's um, yeah. so, so fascinating. But we got to take a quick break. We're, we're going to come right back. Keith Oberman is uh, with us from uh, Central Park. And we don't really yeah. know what we're talking about, but it's okay. Yeah, we'll be back after. <laughs> Made a these career months. of that. Right back. <laughs> McCowan and Shannon and Keith Oberman is with us. He's overlooking Central Park in uh, New York City. Um, look, uh, I know you. I see you looking. Yeah. Uh, Shannon mentioned to me that he he chatted with you obviously before we we did this, and um, I gather you wanted to say something about Buck Martinez, um, yeah. uh, longtime friend of ours. I mean, I go back to the day he came to the Blue Jays as a catcher. Through his managerial stuff, he and I had a um, a kind of a negative relationship for a long time, which we sorted out actually on the golf course, mm-hmm. and. Um, He's uh, in a bit of a fight right now. Um, yeah. I, I think we're all kind of optimistic. He seems to be. We hope so. But um, say what you wanted to say, please, Keith. I'm I'm gl- I'm glad to hear that he's optimistic, and I hope very much that. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a time when when our contemporaries are going through these things, mm-hmm. and many of our friends and, and some of ourselves are going through these things too. And he's now the you know now the guy of foremost concern because. I don't know, it's 1993. Uh, ESPN took me off SportsCenter and asked me to host a, a new network called ESPN2, which is another series of stories. Uh, but as part of the deal, in addition to the, I don't know, $10,000 raise they gave me, I said, uh, to make me do this, I, I need the opportunity to at least try to find out if I can be a baseball play-by-play announcer. I have no professional experience doing this. I have... Uh, uh, not done it since high school, and the highlight of that broadcast was the math teacher's dog came over and peed on my coat while I was doing the broadcast. <laughs> uh, that was the best part of it and my reaction to it. I said, however, I think with a little study and a little practice, I can at least not embarrass you, so I'd like to do a couple of games. And they had these backup games in those mm-hmm. days where to, to, you know, if the Dodgers and the Cardinals were on ESPN, they could not be exclusive at that point. And so on a Friday night, they would send a crew somewhere else to do a game that would only go to the Dodger and Cardinal viewers. Right. And one Friday, it was the Phillies and the Astros in Philadelphia, and they said, you get to do it. And I don't know, two weeks later, we would premiere ESPN2 and see how it goes. And 
I knew Buck from his playing days as well. I covered the 1976 American League playoffs, which did not end well, and certainly did not end well for Buck, who was the catcher who called the pitch that was hit out by Chris Chambliss to win the pennant for the Yankees and not for the Royals. And I was at that game watching it as a kid, kind of reporter and Yankee fan. In any event, I knew Buck from from his playing career and had met him a couple of times. And he had been at ESPN because he was in the ESPN baseball announcer. And they assigned him to do it, which was kind of a surprise to me because he was, you know, maybe third on the depth chart. He was pretty high up on the baseball uh, team from ESPN. And I was kind of pleased by it because I always thought he did a great job. And we, I get to Philadelphia and there's a meeting or there's a, a note waiting for me. Uh, if you want to have lunch, let's let's go have lunch. And this was noon. The game was seven o'clock. I don't think other than bathroom breaks, he left my side until we were done with the broadcast. And if you ever wondered how a man could hit roughly 215 for the length of his career and and not have any running ability and no power and last 17 years and then go into broadcasting. And then as a broadcaster, somebody said he'd make the correct call for our managerial post. And then when that did not work, go back into broadcasting and go back and broadcast then the games of the team that he had managed, uh, all of, without these you know big marquee kind of qualifications. Uh, I found all that out that day and could have, if you'd asked me, probably predicted the future for him, you know, of his longevity and his careers going forward, in addition to understanding the longevity of his career going backwards. Buck Martinez saw from the brevity of my answers, and anybody watching this knows that I don't usually have brevity in my answers, <laughs> that my brevity indicated I was scared to death. And it was very nice to think, you know, well, I can do this. And then the day comes where you have to do it five hours and 45 minutes from now and never have done it before. And Buck treated me like a pitcher up from double A and was, you know, let me let me start by going back to the worst day of my life. Perhaps you've heard of it. And he described game five of the American League Championship Series in 1976. I was the guy who did not have Mark Littell warm up while they were clearing up the garbage on the warning track at Yankee State. That was the biggest mistake I made in my life. And he went through, you know, the low points, not the high points. And I said, by the way, I was at that one. And he goes, yeah, I, I've heard I've heard that you were there. I said, I, no, no, no criticism intended. I was a Yankee fan. I was kind of happy even if you were not. But he went on and told all these stories about things that did not go well. And I'm, and I'm trying to understand why he's underscoring these things. And what he said was, and yet, here I am today working with you, which is a pleasure. And we're, we're, it's a nice day. We have a great booth. We have good money for doing this. I have a very nice suit. You have a very nice suit. Even if things go as badly as the wildest elements of your imagination can imagine, just don't worry about it. You will be fine. Everything will come. Sun will come up in the morning. I don't think any of these bad things are going to happen, but just accept the possibility that they will. If you freeze up or you're not sure that you're doing well, just point at me and I will talk until you are ready to talk again. And this, uh, these series of parachutes and emergency, you know, break glass with the stick signs. The description of them that he gave me probably went on for half an hour. There was, when I went into that booth, I had no idea how I was going to be a play-by-play -play announcer. And I also knew that if I was the worst play-by-play -play announcer there had ever been, Buck Martinez would get the broadcast out and land the plane safely. Mm -hmm. And if you can imagine this, we sit down and we do our, we, do, we, we only have access to the booth during the game. It's tiny. It's the, the vet in Philadelphia, which was a dump to begin with. The press box was a dump. And we're in this tiny room and we, we do our on camera and we turn around, sit down and the monitor is not on. There's only one monitor for the game and it's not on. And so they haven't plugged it in yet. And now they come over and the electrician plugs it in and nothing happens. And we do not have a monitor for baseball, live baseball play-by-play -play broadcast. So the worst thing happens, one of the worst things, completely outside of my inability to do the game or ability to do the game. And Buck goes, well, this will be make it a little more interesting than your typical Friday night. And 
This also gets you off the hook again, Keith. If anything goes wrong with you, nobody will notice because we just can go into management afterwards and go, why the hell was there no monitor in here? And there was no monitor for the first three innings of a live nationally televised baseball game. And they would say to Buck, because I would hear the uh, the control room, obviously, speaking to both of us, too, it was, it was that cheap an arrangement. Okay, we're in the replay. It's uh, it's the it's the first base camera, and Buck would describe the replay of the play he'd just seen without, without being it. able to see the replay. Wow. <laughs> and and throughout all this, going, of course, there was a fine piece of hitting there by, you know, whoever it was, Ken Caminiti, and <laughs> and Keith, it's a good observation on your part. It was just little drop-ins as we went along to reinforce the idea, whether or not it was true that I was any good at what I was doing. I mean, he just, he was not only saying to me, yep, yep, it's good. I like that. He was telling the audience, right. This is good. This guy knows what he's doing. You may or may not think so. I do. You should listen to me. You're already listening to me. That sort of psychological play. And, and I thought after the, at the end of this, we signed off and I just threw my arms around him and, and almost did a George Steinbrenner almost burst into tears. He went, no one will know that was your first unless you tell them. And he, so he continued every time we talked about that game afterwards, it was the same thing. It was like, no, I'm, I didn't do anything. You did all the, and, and to understand the core of somebody's personality, because you can be a salesman, you can be a confidence guy in the good sense of the word, you can be a coach, but if you don't believe that stuff, you can't tell somebody that for half an hour or four hours or seven hours or the length of a broadcast, you can't convince them that they're not going to get sent back to double A in between innings. And it was, that was who he was. And I, you know, every time I would see him, wherever it was, it would come up. One of us would come up, Hey partner, Hey partner, and have a great time managing when he was managing, when he wasn't managing, he was doing the Orioles games, spring training games, you know, political stuff, whatever. We didn't agree on political stuff. It didn't make a difference. (laughs) I'm shocked. He loved loved it. (laughs) He loved the show. He watched. I watch it. He would quote from the show, and he said, "I disagree with the. I love the show. I always say, always say, I the I did his first baseball game, and it was always like, no, Puck, I the you got me through my first baseball. Oh no, no, no. And he would not. He would take no credit. Take credit. And, yeah. Take no credit, and and um, you know, lots of things, lots of things happen, and 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 things happen with his broadcasting style that people would could do impressions of and and lots of it, negative things happened it was always like yeah but let me tell you this about buck martinez from 1993 and then yeah. i tell this story in shorter or the very long form that i've done now so my uh he is in he leads my prayers every night since i heard this news yeah. because uh, beautifully it, said because of that because that's who he is well for you know buck martinez as you said for a 215 hitter as a broadcaster he could hit every curveball well that's true too you know, that's and that's true. and that is amazing. Yeah, he he can help you. He's hey, listen on this show alone, we go and make outlandish statements, and he will take our outlandish statement and reconfigure it and that's, get it back to the topic that needs to be. And at the end of it, you will understand the complexity of what baseball is all about. There have often been theories of three three-handed pitchers. That's you know, right. Let me get you. Let me remind you. That <laughs> That's right. Mark Littell needed to warm up in 1976, yeah. and I did not. And it always, usually, it comes back when he when he corrects you. It usually comes back via him in some way making fun of himself. Probably which is also a really there's a there's a there's a. I said to him, I don't understand how you did not wind up as a psychology professor or you know something in in terms of 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 therapy with people because it really was you felt i I mean i i felt like the the arm on my shoulder had a a catcher's mitt attached to it throughout that broadcast and and you know that's 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 who he is yeah so we we all you know we always you you wish everybody that you've known for a long time uh, the best under these circumstances, but sometimes it is an extraordinary human being uh, who's who's fighting the fight, and and, uh, and and so the wishes are that more that much more heartfelt, I think, and, and certainly um, the emotions that come with thinking about him in this situation are that much more. Agreed.
We couldn't agree more. And I can't think of a better way to uh, end this, uh, this conversation uh, than, um, than having listened to what you had to say about Buck. We've got to, you know, we've known him for decades and um, he's a special guy and we wish him nothing, nothing but the best. Keith, uh, it's not too chilly there, I don't think, but uh, we don't want you to catch cold out on the deck. It's lovely out here on the. If it were too cold, I'd be inside, Bob. You know. That. I hear you. Good grief. Thanks, Bob. I, do have, I do. I do have. There is a. There is an apartment attached to this balcony. I don't live out here, but thank you very much. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> we've seen inside and out both. Uh, Keith Oberman. We'll take the break and come back with more after these messages. Uh, we are back, McCowan, Shannon. Our thanks to Keith Oberman. I think as advertised off the top. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. And his thoughts about Bucker are so true as well, which is great to see. Gosh, yes. And um, I have my stories of my own, but I'm, I'm not going to stick them in here because Oberman's story was uh, perfect. Yeah. And um, we wish Buck a speedy recovery. And um, according to what I know, there's optimism and reason for it. And we, mm-hmm. we hope that's what materializes. Um, Shaquille O'Neal prior to the postseason, predicted that the Philadelphia 76ers would sweep the Toronto Raptors and took a lot of heat from Charles Barkley and others on the uh, TBS panel for that. And then a day or two later, Shaq, um, said, no, I, no, they're not going to sweep. I mean, I don't, know. I don't know what his exact explanation was or excuse was. Well, it's now 3-0 Philadelphia. Yeah. And um, I don't want to suggest that the Raptors got shelled because they didn't. It was a game they could have won and probably should have won. Um, it, it was exactly the kind of turnaround that I thought would happen. Um, the fact that they got blown out in game one and then lost a lead early in game two, um, I thought way too much was being made of that. They played shorthanded. They played nobly. They didn't get a great performance from Pascal Siakam. Second half. Second half, he wasn't. Yeah. No points. And, um, and they still managed to lose in overtime with yeah. one of the best three-point shots I've seen in a long, long time from the probably the least likely guy, Joel Embiid. Well, it, 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 you know, and listening to Freddie Van Vliet after the game, uh, he, he acknowledged that uh, the biggest issue the Raptors are having with Embiid is that Embiid has changed his game uh, to being, rather than being a traditional five, a low post guy that plays with his back to the hoop, he has moved out and has worked on that shot. And is not afraid to take that shot, and is is so much more complete as a basketball player in 2022 than he was three seasons ago in 2019. Um, it was, it, and it was, it was a rather interesting observation from Van Vliet, who um, really I, I thought was very classy in his compliments to what the Sixers have done, knowing full well that the Raptors did have a chance to win in Game Three and just couldn't pull it off. Well, uh, some will recall that I think it was uh, three years ago, the Toronto Raptors played the Philadelphia 76ers in a regular season game, I believe, and held Joel Embiid to zero Zero. points. Zero. To watch the way he has played in these first three games, that is impossible to imagine. And um, it wouldn't happen today. But it's a reflection of how much this guy has improved. Yeah. And that, that zero one game was not indicative of, of what a good player he was at the time because he was that it, that we remember it indicates that he was he was good. Mm-hmm. He's extraordinary now. Well, he, he's he's as close to an unstoppable big man as there is. And in and, and, and looking and in looking at that last play, uh, you also look at uh, the um, the amazing coaching job that Doc Rivers did to get the timeout in play. I mean, to, to actually call, get the timeout done and get the referee's attention. Mind you, it was illegal. Well, but, and it, it, it's, it, by the, by the, by the rule of the law and the, and the book, it was illegal, but it has been allowed for years and years in the NBA, including 
other coaches that have, uh, rather than what Doc Rivers did. Did well, he go outside the coaching box? He was outside the coaching box. He was outside the coaching box by 30 feet. But he, but but the referees get, the referee has to be able to see him, and he, well, the referee didn't see him. Well, wait a second. It, 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 I, I confess to this. I've watched basketball all my life. You didn't I know there never, was a coaching box. I knew. Of course, I knew there was a coaching box. I've never seen anybody called for being outside the coaching box. Correct. And, and I do not know what the call is. But if there is a rule, there must be some kind of uh, ramification for it. What would those officials have done if they called him on being out of the coaching box? Would... It's a technical foul. It's a technical foul. Well, why wasn't it called? I, I, I am not. I mean, uh, if a guy's two feet outside, three feet, six yeah. feet, you can make an argument. Yeah. I'm, but he, I'm not he whining was about in that front one, of the Raptors bench. I'm not whining about that one. He was 30 I'm feet. I'm not whining either. I'm just saying that was noticeable. Yeah. And they didn't do anything. I would rather be more concerned about the free throws that the Raptors lo- uh, left uh, 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 on the line late in the game. You know, but, well, but, the, the, but it, let, let's face it, though. When you have what the Sixers did after being down, what was that? I think they were down 17 at one point. Um, you know, the, uh, what, what they did, the Sixers did for chipping away and chipping away and chipping away was an absolute phenomenal uh, display of basketball by that team. Uh, and the fact that the first time they had the lead, the first time they had the lead all night long, Bob, was in overtime. I, I will say this, and, uh, and it's not as a reflection of a Raptor loss last night, but I really... I mean, I think Nick Nurse is one of the best coaches in basketball, but I don't understand his offense. There's no ball movement. There's no real movement of people. Um, I don't know what the plan is. But that was, but, but that, I mean, this is the and same. And I know team. it's worked it's well. I mean, they won 48 that, games. This was the same team that did work in transition so well for the last 20 games of the regular transition season. is different. You know, if you're, if you're in transition and you're out running, this yeah. Raptor team is formidable. But when they have to play in a set offense, right? That's the problem. But perhaps the six, perhaps the Sixers aren't letting them do it. Perhaps it's just a better team no, at I've the other this, end of the ice. I've other watched end this of the team court. all year, and I have, you know, I kind of close my eyes. And I go, well, okay, somebody's going to go one on one here. I don't know who it's going to be, yeah. or there's going to be a last minute three that's thrown up. I tell but you what, there's no plan. That give, I give, give Maxi and Hard give Maxi and Harden compliments too. They have well, been okay. They, they played they played okay, and I mean no, the Ra- better than okay. Well, the Raptors could have and should have beat them last night, and uh, now they're uh, they're facing the prospect of making Shaquille O'Neal right in the first place with four straight. We got to get out of here. We got one more uh, tomorrow. Some baseball talk for you. Um, JP will join us. We'll talk with him when uh, we come back. We thank you for watching. Goodbye, everybody. 